Good morning, Evergreen. It's such a privilege to join you once again virtually. I really do hope to one day be able to come and be with you in person. As you've no doubt heard already this morning, today is Father's Day, which honestly can be a day of mixed emotion for many of us. This is a picture of my dad, John William Robb, AKA JR, AKA Johnny Boy. My dad was a tradesman, an avid cook, a country music fan, and a quintessential good old boy. This is the photo that we used on his memorial program. And I know it's a little tacky to have used one where he's holding a beer in his hand. But the truth is there aren't many photos of him without a beer in his hand. There weren't a lot of moments with him without a drink in his hand. Father's Day has always been a hard one for me. So I do my best to avoid and distract around it. I work on Sundays. I comb the card section looking for the funny ones, avoiding all the emotional or deeply meaningful ones. I loved that once I had kids, the focus of the day shifted to celebrating my husband, Carl, who is just a hilariously wonderful human being and dad to our kids. Now, but for me, the day has still often been an exercise in trying very hard not to think very hard about my dad because it just hurts. And yet the talk I want to share today, I've titled In Defense of Imperfect Fathers, which is not a sentence I ever thought I'd be saying. However, since my dad died six years ago, the God I also call father has been gently leading me through a re-examination of some of the things I've always held to be true. And I say gently with the full awareness that those of you who have been through grief understand that grief itself is about as gentle as a runaway transport truck. But today I want to share my story with you. Because Father's Day can be difficult for lots of us for different reasons. You know, maybe our experiences of being fathered or fathering or not being able to father, you know, have not gone the way we hoped or dreamed. That complicates today. For some, every day is complicated because of the ways that life and love and family and more have not gone the way we hoped or wanted or genuinely needed them to. And so I think, I hope that the journey our tender God has been leading me on is not just my story, but maybe all of our story. And in case you have to dip out early, let me tell you where we're going to end up today. At Romans 8.28, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose, which may be the best verse in the entire Bible. Now, Romans 8 might be the very best chapter in the whole book. Now, perhaps go home and read it today and then read it again and then read it again till it makes it all the way down into your bones. I'm still trying. I look a lot like my dad, both my brother and I do. I have his eyes, his skin tone, his lack of height, shall we say. My dad always fancied himself a charmer in the crowd, life of the party, master of the house. He grew up in a small town outside the small city of Sarnia. As a teenager, he was a good student, a football player, a lifeguard, and a hard worker. He helped his parents to take care of their family. These are my aunts and uncles and my grandparents. They are a zany and wonderful bunch. But behind the smiley picture was a chaotic and sometimes terribly abusive home. You know, the good times were great, but the bad times were the kind that could scar you for life. And that showed in my dad. 
though not from a musical family, my dad picked up guitar, not exactly for love of the craft, but as he was fond of saying, because girls like guitar players. Turns out kids do too, and many of my best childhood memories involve my dad playing guitar at Christmas or around a campfire. Now both Raffi and Old Country Twang, his guitar now sits in my living room, and Old Country Twang often sits on my playlist. Shout out to childhood brainwashing. <laughs> My dad was smart, so smart, he could have done a million things career-wise. And he was so smart, he knew exactly how to twist and bend reality in dark ways, how to press buttons and play mind games that left the people around him pretty messed up. He was a pipe fitter by trade, proud member of the local 663. When he died, we had to go into the union hall to sign some paperwork. And I remember his boss just kept looking at me so strangely. Finally, he stopped mid-sentence and said, I'm sorry, you just look so much like your dad, it's unnerving. And it was weird for me too, because I was having a similar experience. Not because he looked like my dad, but because his whole vibe felt exactly like my dad. He was his kind of people. I wanted to stay in that room as long as possible. <laughs> Wondered if I could sneak back in and just hang out in the hallway. But that would have been weird, so I just signed the paperwork and left. <laughs> There were some things said that day that didn't make sense to me. At the union hall, they talked about my dad in glowing professional terms. You know, other than his own mom, I'd never really heard anybody talk about my dad in a way that glowed. His boss said he was an outstanding pipe fitter and a highly sought after project supervisor, respected and well-liked by everyone in the field. And when he said that, I remembered that there was a young guy who had come to the visitation a few days before. And that young guy could barely contain his choked up tears as he told us what an amazing mentor and friend my dad had been to him. I didn't know how to reconcile that picture of my dad. A cherished mentor? He wouldn't give his own children the time of day our whole lives long. And my dad's great loves were booze and women. Mentor didn't fit. Those union men were talking very genuinely. It was just about a man that we didn't know. A man my dad had never shown to us. I asked my uncle Brad, who worked in the same industry, like, what gives? Is this for real? And he said, absolutely, it's true, Mandy. That's who your dad was in the field. I knew my dad was often drunk on the job. I assumed that meant a mess, but he was a high-functioning alcoholic. He moved companies a lot, I assumed, because he was difficult, and my dad did relish being a pain in the butt. My uncle said no, he moved a lot because he could, because he was in high demand. My uncle knew the dad we knew, it was the same brother he knew, but it was becoming apparent that there was also another version of my dad, and my uncle had seen that one too. It was the first I began to see that maybe the story that I had been seeing my whole life was not the whole picture. You know, and my dad wasn't a monster by any means, so please don't hear me trying to say that. And I don't need to chronicle for you all of his imperfections. That's neither helpful nor necessary, nor likely to be accurate. We're all well acquainted with pain, and trust me when I say my dad doled out a bunch at home. And the overwhelming feeling simply became that he just didn't really love his kids or his family. To me, it felt like he never wanted a family. Or maybe he only wanted the idea of one, 
but not the actual showing up or raising up or the actual people who his kids became. Or maybe deep down, he did want a family very much, but his own demons left him too tied up to actually be able to engage in what was required to have them. I could see that possibility as an adult, but a kid can't process much beyond the felt impact of trauma. Kids just absorb. And so that's always kind of been a foundational part of my story, you know, that my dad didn't love me, not as a kid and not as an adult. That does some damage inside and it's needed a lot of undoing. So when I came to faith, it was as a messy, wounded girl with deep daddy issues. But then I encountered the kingdom and this man named Jesus who turned everything upside down and right side up and, and he didn't make me perfect, but he made me found. And my heart and soul were transferred from the land of darkness to the kingdom of light and life. You know, and I found this wild and crazy institution called the church, which wasn't an institution at all, but this deep, rich, wonderful family of connected people who loved each other, who were finding God together more and more every day. And it didn't matter if we were related by blood or not. This family did family better than anything I'd ever seen before. And they welcomed me in with open arms. It was a whole new world. And it came with so many healing waters. Now it, it was and is family tied not by DNA blood, but by the blood of Jesus, which is sacred. And when I came to Christ, I started to see a whole different picture of household families too. You know, dads who were out there dadding in ways that were foreign to me. Present, patient, goofy, sober. Being engaged, showing affection, cheering their kids on. Without the dark undertone that had just always been there with my dad. I saw kids feeling safe and loved and wanted. Not perfect, but, but far closer to whole than I had ever seen. And it wasn't just for other kids. My, I had an aunt and uncle who invited me to come and live with them when I was 15. And I got to be up close and personal as my uncle fathered his girls so strongly and warmly. And, and he let all kinds of that dad love spill off onto me too. It radically changed my understanding of family, my experience of Christ, changed me. I have picked up many bonus dads and moms and brothers and sisters and more in the wide family of God since then. You should do the same because they're everywhere and they're good at love and I want to be too. And so through the years as I, as I walked more and more with Christ, I started to understand the reality that I wasn't inherently flawed, discarded, unwanted, unlovable. No, it wasn't me. I wasn't the problem. That message didn't even really come from my dad, although it came through him. It was just a lie, and I'd say a scheme of darkness. And my dad was as much its victim in delivery as I was. And as I drew closer, closer and closer to Jesus, that garbage slowly started to wash off. You know, as I spent more time in God's presence, coming into community, relearning family, as I spent hours in worship and scripture, reading it over and over, letting it go deep in my bones, as I bawled my eyes out in private prayer closets and not so private prayer circles, you know, I learned how to have a very real relationship with a very invisible father. 30 plus years in, the garbage is still being washed away. And it happens through some kind of wild, mystical mix between what I do and what God does and what community does. 
If it hasn't been said to you lately, let me take a minute to remind you, regardless of your childhood story, you are loved just as you are. You're a child of God, a friend of Jesus. You're forgiven, you're free, you're strong, you're significant, you're safe, you're good, and you are enough. You're loved not because of anything you do, but because of who you are. Like when you walk in the room, the Father's eyes light up. You were utterly loved and enthusiastically wanted from the moment you were conceived in the mind of God. You were cherished, adored, longed for, loved, and that hasn't changed. And those are just the universal, true to all of us ones. There's also another list just about you, your unique, profound awesomeness that's not found in anyone else. I could tell you some of it if we sat across the table from each other. And we get to do that holiness with and for one another. But another person can never really say it all to you. You have to hear it from the Holy Spirit within you, one-to-one, -one, you and God. In the quiet of your room, your heart, you have to let that truth sink into you. And I hope you will. So as I became a Christian, learned what it meant to love, to forgive, to heal, and be healed, I tried to figure out how to better love and help bring healing to my dad, too. You know, I could let Jesus heal the wounds inside of me from having a dad who didn't love me because now I understood ah, that was just darkness trying to tear both my dad and us down. And that Jesus had more than enough love to make up for all that we'd lost. So this could change. You know, in Jesus, I was learning that everything could change. All hope was possible. But my dad continued to mostly hold me outside the walls of his life. And he continued to reject all of the invitations into mine. And so I got a chance to practice more and more of this gospel of grace, of mercy, of unconditional love that we have all been called to. And sometimes I succeeded and sometimes I failed, but deep down, honestly, it still ached. And then he died. There had been a few back and forths, health scares of the previous year as cancer reared its ugly head and then seemed to be beaten back and then reappeared. And he had some moments of letting us come close. And then as soon as a bit of strength returned, he pushed back again. My dad died alone. We didn't want him to. We wanted to be there for him. You know, but you can only love people as they will let you. And my dad had repeatedly made it clear he was fine. He was going to be fine. And if he wasn't fine, then he'd rather be not fine alone. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so he was alone. And it ended like that. And I was shocked. <clears throat> Which I shouldn't have been. You know, we all knew that it was a possibility. But all I kept thinking was, I can't believe this. Like, it actually happened. And suddenly I realized that I had been so well-schooled in redemption and my theology and faith had apparently grown so deep that I fully expected that every important story eventually gets its healed, happy ending. I did not know my trust in God was actually that deep, but my shock made it clear. Now I could not believe it was ending like this. But my dad had just died in the middle of a still very broken, very unredeemed, very unhealed, and now suddenly over story. But we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him when called according to his purpose. 
I think perhaps Jesus is never done with the story. We started to go through the motions of wrapping up my dad's life, his home, his estate. At one point in the previous year of up and down, he had asked me if I would do his funeral. Okay, number one, that's a brutal ask to any kid, let alone one with our complicated relational history. Number two, I realized he trusted me to guide the final moments and motions of his presence on earth. He honored who I am and what I do for what felt like the first time ever on the way out. I didn't know quite what to make of that, except, well, this is different. And then I had to get on with the impossibility of officiating a funeral, only the second I'd ever done, for the dad who I didn't think had ever loved me. I didn't know yet that uh, my understanding of a whole lot of things was about to undergo a massive confusing shift. But it was. And this will seem completely dumb, and it is really, but it happened because of a will and a few dollars and cents. And dollars don't mean anything, not really, except that we culturally put so much value on them. And I'm not even a big money kind of person. So while what I'm about to tell you is going to be all about money, believe me when I say it's not about the money. My dad left a will. Of course, most people do. My dad was a ducks in a row kind of guy and he had put his affairs in order. And there's no million dollar pot of gold or anything in this story, so gauge your expectations accordingly. And maybe this won't seem amazing to you at all. But when this thing that happened happened, I knew that I knew that it was God alone speaking to me in it. It wasn't incidental, it wasn't accidental, it wasn't run of the mill. This was God pulling back a spiritual curtain. I knew it in the way that you sometimes just know, even in the midst of something completely ordinary happening, that it's actually the wild, strong, unmistakable voice of God speaking through it that suddenly turns the ordinary into the extraordinary. Now, all that happened was this. My dad left everything, his estate, his pension, his house. He left everything only to my brother and I. There was not even a single other name mentioned in the will. And I know you're probably thinking, well, duh, that's what people do. You, you leave your estate to your kids. But that wasn't the dad I knew. Like, you don't understand. He picked us. And he never picked us. Not in his whole life. He picked his women first, and he picked his buddies next. He clearly had picked the union guys at times. But he never picked us. And yet in the end, in his will, it was us and only us. My dad had three ex-wives and multiple girlfriends, many of whom he was still very tight with. My mom was his lifelong obsession, but there were no women, no buddies, no friends, no charities, no siblings. In the end, for him, it was us and only us. And in that moment, I could feel God cracking something open deep inside of me, saying, you haven't understood the whole story. You haven't known what you thought you knew. He'd retired a few years earlier and, and even chose to take his pension in such a way that he would get a lesser benefit while alive so that we would get a greater benefit if he died early. My dad was meticulous and, and smart, and he didn't really have enough money to play like that. It wasn't a mistake. But I didn't know the man who would have made those decisions. You haven't understood the whole story. You haven't known what you thought you knew. 
It's so stupid because it's just money. <laughs> but as I held a check from an insurance company in my hands a few weeks later, all I could think was, I can't cash this. <laughs> like this piece of paper feels like the only visible proof I've ever had that he really did love me. It's okay, I did cash it. <laughs> and now there's, there's money that sits on my bank account and a pension payment that has arrived every month for the last six years and will for one more. And every time I look at it, I see it again. He loved me. He really did. He just didn't know how to do it in life. But in the deepest part of him, it was real. He just didn't know how to bring it to the outside. And I would still trade any chunk of money to have made the living different, for him to have not left me a penny, but to have wanted to be a part of my life, for him to call me or want us to come over on a Sunday afternoon, for him to want to know me at all. But I never got that. And I never will. That's the worst part of grief to me, that for the first time, never becomes a legitimate word. It wasn't what I needed. Money, leftovers, and inheritance. I needed a dad but we all come broken. And maybe he couldn't be much of a dad, but he loved us all the same and that matters. Maybe it's all that matters. I've had wise, loving voices speak truth into my soul. Things like, you know what? It's his loss because you're a pretty great kid to have and he's the one missing out. And I know I'm not like the best ever, but I'm not an ax murderer either. So, you know, context. And that has been part of my healing, right? Words of truth and love sewn into my heart by others. His, his actions were not about me, they really weren't. It was about something messed up inside his own soul. But there's another side now that I'm seeing because he's not the only one who missed out. I missed out too. Because I've gone my whole life believing that my dad didn't love me. I let myself believe that. And it wasn't true. It just didn't look like I wanted or what I understood, so I couldn't see it for what it was. Right? How often do we do that? And so I've carried around a wound that cut much deeper than the real infraction needed to. My dad didn't know how to have a relationship with his kids, and he was trapped in thoughts and beliefs that took life from him. That's brutal. That hurts. That has some ramifications for all of us. But it's different than saying that the man half responsible for my existence didn't love me at all. It's different. Now, love doesn't always look like we want or expect or even genuinely need. But maybe we're too quick to decide that means it's not real. And we miss the truth that, that maybe it's the best version of love the person across the relationship from us can manage right now. That maybe they're fighting battles we know nothing about that maybe it's actually a, a pretty profound sacred offering they're giving us even when it's a bit damaged. My dad wanted to be much more than he was. I know he did. Everything in his life screams that. I wanted him to be more than he was too. But nobody sets out to intentionally hurt the ones they love the most. He did love us. He was just battling his own demons and we could neither conquer nor compete with them. And I don't know if our adult relationship, at least, could have taken on a different tone if I could have just gotten to that sooner. And maybe not because it wasn't my battle to win or lose, but the truth is I've carried so much more hurt than I needed to. 
And hurt makes us act in weird, unproductive ways in any relationship. Doesn't matter whose fault it is. So maybe if I could have let go of that, it could have allowed something else to trigger in him too. And maybe we both could have wound up in a better space. I don't know. I won't get to know with him. But he's not the only relationship I have. And I think we are all in danger of doing this all over the place with the ones we care about. Because I don't know who's on the other side of some hurt equation for you. But as long as there's still breath in your lungs and breath in their lungs, then you've still got a chance to write a different ending. I don't know if my dad did the best he could do. I know he did the best he thought he could do. And so it became true. I'll tell you what else I know. I'm doing the absolute best I know how to do with my kids. And I am painfully aware that it's so far from what I wish it were, even from what they need. And so I and my dad are very much the same. Can I let you love me the best that you can? Can that be enough? Can I have grace for all that your love is not, desperately hoping you'll have the same for me? These are the questions I ask myself these days. Because I don't want to make the same mistake again and again in my life. I don't want to keep missing out. I'll tell you one more story. A couple of years after my dad died, I went on a two-day solo prayer retreat. I wanted to just go back to some of the literal places of my childhood where, where difficult things had happened and, and just be with Jesus in those spots. It might seem weird, but God is often a God of place. We see that in the Bible. And so I hopped on my motorcycle and went on a bit of a pilgrimage. But first I thought I'd just take a quick detour and swing by the old farm where my grandparents used to live, which was not a difficult place, but one of the best. And so I pulled over to the side of the road and took my helmet off and immediately was hit with the same like wonderful, bright, life-giving feels I always remembered feeling there. Like, it's just so, so good. And then a second wave of feeling hit, the overwhelming presence of what I would call the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden I realized these two were the exact same feeling. This was the same indescribable thing I had often felt out there on the farm. I had known God's presence as a kid. I just didn't know what it was that I was knowing. And all of a sudden, the past got so much clearer. You know, I didn't really have a before Jesus and after Jesus story or life. He had been there right beside me the whole time. Through all the awful painful things and all the warm and wonderful things, Jesus was always right there holding God's presence and love all around me. That moment changed the entire rest of what I thought that prayer retreat was going to be. As I then went to all the difficult places, I just kept feeling Jesus whispering into my ear and into my heart, I was here too. Even when you didn't feel me, couldn't see me, you weren't alone. So, so what is there to do in light of this big messy story? Number one, I'd just say, seriously, consider making a pilgrimage or, or taking a prayer retreat yourself. You know, are there places that you might need to go to, conversations you might need to have with Jesus about some of the pain spots in your story? It may seem weird, but you have no idea what could happen. It could be so, so good. For some of us, I'd say maybe it's time to relook at the past through new eyes. 
you know, to ask some questions our hearts maybe haven't had the courage to ask yet from under their mountain of hurt. For me, it was questions like, what did things look like from my dad's seat? You know, what was he trying to do with his family, even if it didn't quite work? Now, I've had to reevaluate so many truths that I thought I understood. There's nothing good to be done with hurt except to just forgive it. Nadia Boltz Weber says, forgiving awful things doesn't mean saying it's now okay what happened. It means you're saying it was so not okay that you don't even want to be connected to it anymore. So you have to untie from it and release. Maybe we need to relook at the present through a different lens too, with new eyes and gentler hearts and asking the same kind of questions. You know, who is trying their best? How do things look from their seat genuinely? Are there places where maybe you don't see the whole picture, don't, don't know what you think you know? Nobody wants to hurt the people they care about, not really. We're all just trying so desperately to heal what hurts inside ourselves. And we forget that there's really only one true source of healing and hope and love and esteem and significance and safety and deep, deep joy. And that source actually isn't anything that can ultimately be found in any person sitting across the table from you, whether they're your dad or your partner, your kids or your ex or your boss or your friends. There's only one source and his name is Jesus. Maybe we could be a little more careful before we go torching really good things because they aren't all and everything and exactly what we need or want love to look like right now before we say they're not good enough. Maybe we all need a whole lot more grace and gentleness with one another. Sacredness. Now, what does love require of me? That's the question we're continually called to ask and then to listen honestly for an answer and then courageously follow where it calls. Not focusing on, on how do I get loved, but on how do I be love from deep within. We're all doing the best we can. and We, we must really, really do the best we can. And then let's trust that others are doing the same as well. And finally, have faith. We have to keep learning how to have real faith in something so much higher and stronger and better than ourselves, better than our dads, better than whatever we can presently see with our eyes. You know, because the reality of life is so much more than what we can see in front of us right now. This is my favorite picture of me and my dad. I think this is a picture of what both of us really wanted our relationship to be like before too much pain got in the way. No, but this story isn't over yet. It's just on pause until heaven now, I hope. I think Jesus is not done. I think Jesus is never done. So I don't know where your pain is this morning, but I'm guessing it's somewhere. The relationship or situation, internal or external, that, that didn't go or isn't currently going the way you hoped and dreamed it would. Personally, I am stubbornly committed to hope and to looking forward to the day when there will be no more tears, sorrow, grief, no disordered world, but only the kingdom free and full at last, restoration for my dad and for me and for me and my dad. Until that time, this is what I know, that I and you 
have the most doting, wise, kind, caring, loves you so much it almost looks like he's obsessed with you, dad in the entire universe, and lover in the entire universe, and friend in the entire universe, and everything else in the entire universe. He is love, and it is actually enough. And the story isn't even close to done.